There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to leadership. Discover your inspiration to lead by hearing from those who are in the trenches each day, leading themselves and leading others. We will learn about their unique leadership style and identify the shared qualities between those who do it tremendously well. Welcome to the Lead with Empower podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a, a heck of a summer break. It, it's, I, I'm cheating. It was a little bit of spring, a little bit of summer, and, and the first week of September. But the Lead with Empower podcast is back. And I could not ask for a better guest to help kick off our fourth season, bat and lead off in season four. Uh, he's a guy that I met from a uh, uh, through a, a mutual friend uh, and a, a former Lead with Empower podcast guest, Mr. Jim Warnock. Um, but today, our visitor on the Lead with Empower podcast is Mr. John Yeager. John is a former collegiate, high-end collegiate and professional athlete, former educator. He is right now uh, running Jaeger Leadership, which is uh, does uh, quite a bit of consulting, all about leadership. And like I said, couldn't ask for a better guy to be on a leadership podcast than a guy that has really uh, made leadership a, a, a big part of his life. So, um, John, super excited to have you on today. How are you doing? And uh, yeah, how, how are you? How are you doing this uh, this uh, nice fall day today? I'm great, and I'm really honored with that introduction to be your leadoff uh, speaker. Uh, I'm honored to have you, and our our, our listeners are going to have just a ton uh, of takeaways uh, here from our conversation with John, and uh, we'll get into the, the book he recently co-authored, and uh, we'll talk a little bit about that throughout the, uh, the podcast as well. But yeah, John, can't thank you enough, and we're coming off a of Labor Day weekend. Did you have a good opportunity to connect with some family and, and recharge the battery over the long weekend or what? Yeah, definitely, definitely recharged the battery and connected, uh, you know, via the airways with family, which uh, we're in uh, Indiana and our family, much of our families back in, uh, in the Boston area, but connecting with them through the rainstorms back there. Awesome. Awesome. And is everybody holding up all right? And hopefully we're oh, yeah. on the back end of this uh, whole, the whole pandemic situation. Um, I feel like we've been on the home stretch of it for quite some time, but everybody hanging in health wise. Yeah, well they're, 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 they're in good shape. Thanks. Awesome. Oh no, my pleasure. My pleasure. So John, we'll, we'll get right into it with, with Jaeger leadership and, and, you know, tell us a little bit about Jaeger leadership and, you know, what some of your day-to-day -day responsibilities are and just a little bit about the, the, the organization and some of the consulting work that you do. Well, Dan, I've always been fascinated with the why of human behavior and how people uh, function individually, function in teams and overall larger systems. And through Jaeger leadership, we, we work with businesses, schools um, and sports organizations to help them foster a culture of teamwork and collaboration and joint accountability for their success. You know, we help to increase their engagement and it helps to relate to kind of their key result areas and the key performance indicators. So whether it is uh, corporate uh, schools or um, sports, it's, it's, it's the same because we're dealing with human behavior. Yep. And part of human behavior is people, uh, have uh, this loyalty to the hive and want to be part of something, you know, and that's where that teaming piece comes in. And uh, as I said before, I'm really fascinated with the why of behavior, but also the why of people connecting within each other within teams. What was there a point in your life where, because I, I agree with you, the human behavior, and we we do it in somewhat different avenues, but very parallel, I believe. Was there a point in your life where it really clicked to you? Like, wow, this is, this is interesting. This is something I'm really passionate about. Like how early or late in your journey did you start to realize that passion of not only human behavior, but you know, the, the, the what and the why behind it? Well, I think back for me, it, it goes back to when I was 11 years old. And, uh, you know, that, that first piece that really my first kind of experience that I had with a coach, and he, in, and he was an informal coach, it happened to be my father, 
and it was a July 4th road race in Framingham, Massachusetts. And I had been running around a lot and I had enjoyed it at the time. And uh, I asked if I could enroll, you know, uh, get into the July 4th road race before the big parade in Framingham. So it was a three mile race. Um, and so they said, sure. And so my father brought me down to the starting line and I looked around me and everybody else was 10 years older than me. And this is a little uh, scrawny prepubescent uh, kid just standing there and just literally uh, my hands are cold and clammy. My heart rate's going a mile a minute. I'm saying, what have I got myself in for? <laughs> and so I looked over at my father and he didn't have to say a word. He just smiled at me. And that smile said everything. It said, uh, you want to do this or not? Your call. No evaluation. I'm here for you no matter what. Yeah. So I decided to suck it up. Uh, courage taking over for confidence there. <laughs> On the line and uh, the gun went off and uh, I took off and I came in dead last. I mean, the parade almost caught up to me. <laughs> the uh, sirens coming from the fire trucks, which typically come at the beginning. And so therefore I, you know, I got, you know, I, I finished it up, but, but for me, that said an awful lot about, um, about just, just, not not being gritty in the whole situation, but giving permission to make my own call. Yeah. That I was in control of making my own call there and I did it and I owned it. And I think for me, when I started actually coaching, probably um, 10 years later at the high school level, I kind of, that kind of stayed with me. And also stayed with me through a lot of my uh, athletic experiences also as a, as a player, as a participant yep. too. So that really stuck with me kind of as an, as, as an origin there. A, a second piece came out uh, when I was in college and it was my senior year at Boston state and Boston state is actually UMass Boston now. Yep. It's, uh, and uh, by back then the school was located on Huntington Avenue down near Northeastern. And it was my, as I said, my senior year, I think of eligibility, but not necessarily in, 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 in the classroom, because I think I had some social side effects my sophomore year to get in the way of that. So anyway, uh, it was our uh, first game of the lacrosse season, and I had a really good summer playing some club lacrosse, and we were playing Bowdoin College. And, and our field, Dan, was three miles away from our campus because we had no green space there. We were really close to Fenway Park. And so we'd have to get in or get a ride from somebody over there on the team by Storo Drive to the backside of Harvard in Alston, Brighton. So picture our field there, uh, um, a lot of dirt, a lot of rocks, a little piece of blade of grass and some glass on the field separated by a chain link fence and razor wire with the pristine fields of Harvard and the Harvard Coliseum. <laughs> so therefore, um, you know, the... Uh, you know, it has a great view over there, but that's where we played. So we got there for our first game and I was a goalie. And some people call goalies in lacrosse courageous. Other people call them stupid. <laughs> what I was there, but I got in there and I played absolutely awful. Played my the worst game I've ever played in my life. And I wish the coach could have taken me out. Uh, that's how bad it was going, but he couldn't yep. because goalies behind me just did my backup goalies weren't ready for prime time. So I had to suck it up. So, so for the next two days, I kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of drowned in some of my grief, you know, of, of my identity of being a, uh, a college lacrosse goalie. And really, was I an imposter? Was this the real thing? I, you know, I wish I knew a lot more about sports psychology then than I, than I do now. But anyways, there was some, you know, potential redemption available on that Thursday because we were playing Middlebury College at home. So I remember getting into Danny Hayes's 1970 Chevy Impala with wings on the back of it to drive over <laughs> to a field against Middlebury on that uh, Thursday, early April day. And we couldn't get out of Boston. It was Red Sox home opener. And, you know, when that happens, you know, the classes get out early and everybody, you know, floods over in cars and foot traffic to, to the Fenway. And so we finally got out of there and showed up an hour late to Smith Field. <laughs> Um, and uh, Middlebury was already already there, kind of warming up there in front of us. And uh, 
So this was not good. I know I'd only have a short warm up and stuff like that. And so I remember Middlebury's head coach, Rob Pfeiffer, big guy, had tie and tight haircut, looked like he was ex-military barking on instructions. And they're very clean cut. And we're a bunch of hippies. We got hair down our shoulders, brown. Mine was brown at the time. You know, <laughs> headband and peace sign. Okay. And, uh, and, and saying that, Hey, you know, you know, we got it, you know, and, uh, uh, one of our players, Ronnie and Jemmy, you know, had his long hair and he actually had a beard, but he shaved off half his beard before the game to pump us up. So you can say a lot about our personality with that. So we got into that game and first shot of the game goes in on me and I'm saying, okay, good shot. Okay. Second shot goes five hole in me on me. And then I'm saying, oh no. And that in the back of my head, you know, as John Kabat-Zinn talks about in mindfulness, the monkey mind. My drunken monkey was in the back of my head just saying, yeah, you are an imposter. You are no good. And then, uh, and that's where courage had to take over from confidence and just had to stay in there and suck it up. And fortunately, the next shot uh, the Middlebury player took, I made the save. I passed the ball down. We cleared it down and we scored on it. And then we were down two to one. Well, we scored the second goal, went up two to two. At that time, the ball became like a beach ball to me. And I felt like I was in the zone. Uh, and we win the game six to two. So it was probably, you know, the best game I ever played in my life, you know, counter, you know, to the game several days before. But that's not really why I tell the story. That was about performance. Uh, the, the thing about relationships really came to light in the second period when Rob Pfeiffer called a timeout and he goes, you know, Middlebury timeout and referee blew his whistle and the players running to their bench we're dutifully running to our bench. And if you remember Ronnie with half a beard, he runs to their bench. I go, oh, what's going on with Ronnie? And we're yelling with our Boston accent, Ronnie, what are you doing? What are you doing? He works his way through the Middlebury huddle, which you don't do. Yeah. <laughs> what to do? He jumps on the back of the coaches, the back of the coach of the other team. Coach turns around, Ronnie takes his helmet off. They come off there and they look up at each other. They smile. They tear up and they embrace. And what is going on here? The backstory. When Ronnie heard that voice, the last time he had heard Pfeiffer's voice, that intonation and inflection of that specific voice was six years before in the jungles of Vietnam. Yep. Pfeiffer was his platoon commander. And they had fought with each other. And that was 45 years ago. And, and, it, and it, it resonates with me. And when I wrote a book for U.S. lacrosse back in the mid-2000s, I, I mentioned that story. And I interviewed 10 people from that day. And, um, you know, five from each team. And uh, they remembered the same exact thing that happened there. Yeah. And that talked about not just about competing against Middlebury. It was the collaboration of two teams kind of connecting the dots with each other to really show the joy in sport. And since then, that's always been a very important part for me in working as a coach and working with teams about not looking at a team as the enemy, but the team as, as an, uh, an, an entity that has the potential to bring out the best in you. Yeah. And that really struck me. And, you know, and I find myself working with a lot more sports teams now because I just, you know, I just love to see that, you know, sports being a natural, a natural a space, you know, for this type of competition and also for this collaboration. And to go back a little bit to, to, you know, the, the experience as an 11 year old and, and probably there wasn't a cognizant grasp of what happened in that moment. I'm sure it was probably some reflection years down the road. Like, Hey, that smile was like that. All right, let's, let's go. And I'm going to run the race and, and give it my best shot. And then at the, at the college level, having, you know, the low of, you know, talking yourself almost into this. Am I really, am I really suited for this? Am I a college, you know, lacrosse goalie and, and having to overcome that, were you a little bit more aware at the time, um, you know, during those two college experience of, I guess, the power of mindset? Like you can talk yourself into a, 
a, a crummy competition, but then you can also talk yourself into overcoming maybe an, a, a rough start early and end up having a, a you know one of the best games of, of your college career. Talk a little bit about the power of mindset in sport for, from your point of view, John. I think looking at the, that, looking at the growth mindset where, where effort is, is, is critical there uh, and, that, and that, you, that suffering is inevitable, that, that, that working through that, I know, um, I, I believe, I, I, as you're saying, I didn't cognizantly, you know, reflect upon that, you know, July 4th, 11-year-old race, you know, uh, I just always knew it was there. You know, I knew it was there and it was important, but yeah. I didn't know why. Um, and I think when it came, when I was 21 years old on the lacrosse field against Middlebury, then it became a little bit more clear to me, the competition, the collaboration piece, the, the capacity to, to, to wind down with ha not having that confidence and be able to drum up the reserve to do that. It was really helpful. And I believe that as a, uh, when I continued to play at the club and professional level with lacrosse, I believe that really helped me out a lot. And I think both those events, those situations really helped when I started working with teams, Yeah, you know, as a coach and as a consultant, you know, not just telling the story, you know, about that, but, but trying to get the stories of those I was working with, whether they're coaches or other teams or looking at, you know, thinking of the term sorry, S-A-R-I, you know, what's the situation? What's the action? What's the result? What's the insight? Yeah. So getting coaches and athletes to be in to, uh, begin to understand their stories and how their stories help to mold how they approach the game. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, and that's a, a great transition because I want to spend a little time talking about, um, the book you co-authored co recently, The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports. And because going through the book, there's so many stories from people you have crossed paths with, people that you have spoken to, have coached at a variety of levels, some of the highest end, you know, high-end coaches and, you know, and, and, and you know, down from there. Um, and you... It's it's an ever present part of the, ever present part of the book of you know understanding your story and understanding your own why and before we get dive into kind of the three layers of the coaching zone what was what was your inspiration for writing writing that book? Well, I I, I believe through my years of as a as a athlete and as a coach and as a consultant I I realized after a while I had, I had put together an awful lot of information and connections yeah. with a lot of different coaches and, and saw a lot of consistencies about coaches that seemed to be most effective from bringing out the best in their athletes um, and that they had some level of satisfaction and enjoyment for their athletes and for themselves. And I, um, you know, and I thought through that, you know, and I started, so I started, you know, working on the book around five years ago and, and, uh, and just kind of plugged away with it. And, uh, you know, one of the, 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 the upsides of COVID was the capacity to finish it because yep. my consulting dried up because I was doing everything via Zoom and some of the teams I was working with didn't even have seasons, you know, and some of the athletes the same and, and I found that um, but by, by being able to, uh, you know, take all those experiences and what I ended up doing is I ended up, went out and, and uh, interviewed around 50 different coaches that I knew, sports scientists and sports psychologists, you know, uh, to put together their stories, their SARI, their SARI, and, and how it related to, to things much, much more than some typical coaching books talk about, you know, um, and, and, and that was really, really exciting. And what's, you know, my, the, the, the individual who helped to copy, I mean, content edit my, the book, uh, Catherine Britton, I had met her when I was a graduate student in uh, the positive psychology program at the University of Pennsylvania, which I draw on a lot for that in my yeah in the book, but, but, but Catherine was great because she didn't know much about sport. 
And she was able to help edit the book in ways that could be understandable by all people who read the book and especially for new coaches and for seasoned coaches. Yep. And, and that was really exciting. You know, so when I look at it now, it says, well, that's easy to read, but I, I was probably a little bit too verbose when I did my first couple cuts of that. Yeah. I got in there, you know, and that was one of the things that I, one of the first things I noticed one, when we had our first uh, introductory conversations back in goodness, it was either April or May, I think when we hopped on the phone and a zoom call and, um, and then getting into the book, it's not, I don't think it's, 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 it's not narrow to where it's just about leading in sports effectively. I think there's so much that can be pulled to leading an organization, whether it's a two or three person operation all the way up to thousands of people. Um, so I, I would agree. I think the content you were, you were courageous enough to let it be trimmed, trimmed down and, and cleaned up so that, you know, yeah, it's going to help the beginner coach, the experienced coach, but there's, lessons from the, from the book that I've tried to implement into our adventure education work and just, just leading our team and, and, and trying to keep our team effective. And that's, was one of the things that stuck out to me that I think I, I appreciate the most out of it is it's very applicable. It's very transferable beyond sports. So kudos to you and the, and the editing team there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> You're very no, welcome. Well through some of the reviews I had heard that, you know, that it had implications for leadership at, at, at any level at in any, any vocation. Yes. Well, yeah, you can, uh, you can add one more. It's probably not the most elegant uh, um, review, but you can add one more that, you know, and again, for anybody in, I'll, I'll make sure I include in the show notes, the, the website for Jaeger leadership and the coaching zone book. Um, whether you're in sports or not, if you're a coach or even just, you know, an athlete who might aspire to be a coach, it's, it's a, it's worth picking up. It's worth the read a hundred percent. Because again, I, th I think the lessons apply far beyond an athletic field. Um, yeah. The, and the I, other I thing, I, oh, go ahead, John. And then some of the, you know, we hear so much about, you know, you bringing the locker room to the boardroom and using sports analogies and metaphors. In some way, this is boardroom to the locker room because of the some of this positive psychology exercises, activities I bring in there and with some of the, the, the coaches' uh, narratives in there. Uh, actually, it actually brings some business pieces right into kind of sports where it has, uh, uh, it, it has a really neat fit. Yep, yep. And for, the, and for the listeners too, what you're, what I, you know, what you're not going to get this from this book is, you know, this is a drill you should run for this. Like, it, it, again, like I said, it's a lot of uh, content exercises, stories, recommendations that, you know, you can take and make, you know, build it into your team's culture and team I'll use as to define something, you know, involved in athletics or outside of athletics as well. And again, I, I just a tremendous job across the board by you and the team there. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Uh, the, the, the other thing that stuck out to me, and, and, and I think we talked about this during our initial conversation is, you know, you were explaining, this was prior to me having the copy of the book here was um, you broke it down into basically three layers, the, the coach self-management, leading and empowering athletes and, and, and the team dance. And as you were explaining it to me, it again, jogged up like, all right you know, very similar to how, you know, we at the empower team define leadership where you have your level one leadership of self, your level two leadership of others. And then your, your level three, which is, you know, that leadership culture building. If you can take a second, John, for each of those layers, starting with the self-management or the coach self-management, and then moving over to the, the leading and empowering athletes and then, and then culminating with the team dance. Give our listeners without giving away, I don't want to spoil it because I, I still want, I'm going to want people to, to hit click and buy on the book here because uh, it's a great read. Talk a little bit about what went into that organizational structure and why it made sense to you to, to structure the book in that format. I had, uh, I had really subscribed a lot to the work that Daniel Goleman has done. He's the kind of the, uh, of, a, of emotional uh, intelligence fame, but an article that he wrote in a 2013 Harvard Business Review, 
uh, called The Focus Leader. He eventually, I think, in the next year came out with a book called Focus or the year before with that. Um, and but, but he talked about this notion similar to the level one, two, three leaders of a focus on self, focus on others and focus on the wider world or, or on the team. So I took that direction to go with that and looking at that first part of the book uh, as being critical to being coaching self-management, you know, and where coaches have a self-awareness of their, their, their strengths and, and their shortcomings and their stories, you know, uh, that, that that was critically important. They also, you know, looking as a coach to the level of passion that they had, whether it was, you know, a passion that is uh, harmonious with other things they do in their lives or it was obsessive where it kind of gets away from them in different ways. And um, but also purpose and going back to, to, the, to the why behavior, why do I do what, what I do? throughout the lifespan of coaching. Um, and, then, and then also talking about uh, the two uh, coaching voices, which is really about two thinking modes, um, you know, system one and system two thinking, where, where coaches are all human beings, uh, you know, when, they, when we make automatic thought, when we have automatic thinking or system one thinking, that means we do things kind of knee-jerk reaction. It's just basically we, we, we've we've it's eighty five percent of our our, our thinking behavior. Yeah. We we know it's like brushing our teeth, okay, or riding a bike, and that's critically important in coaching and in sport to be able to do that without overthinking. Yeah. Of course, there's errors to that too because you may not you may have an error in having that quick situation where you don't think about it and make a mistake. You know, um, where 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 the 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 coach can't help him or herself and gets on the official, you know, and then gets a card for that, you know, something like that. And then that other fifteen percent is system two or controlled or reflective thinking, which I think about more being part of the uh, practice time. We get to you know, okay, so try this out. Let's step back. Let's try this again. Think about how we did this, and you do that to the point until it becomes second nature yeah. you know, and then it becomes a system one thing and it's the ability for coaches to shift between system one and system two along with their players to be able to do that that's important one of the things i i, I talk about a story that adam naylor who's a boston area um, um mental skills consultant uh who works who's worked with professional athletes olympic athletes college athletes and uh, basically, he tells of a hockey coach who who uh, who was pretty much you know system one and just really kind of very, very, you know, emoted a lot, was really out there and uh, you know with different things and and actually at times would get himself into trouble with the officials of trying to protect his own players. And so um, one of the things that Adam says is just you just can't go and change a coach like that because emotions are important. He needed to temper them to a certain degree. And so basically, uh, you know, if, if you look at a hockey coach who gets upset with an official and basically may be standing behind the bench and may put a step up on the bench and a step up on the, on the boards there, looking over, you know, and, and letting, letting the official have it there. And that's what his behavior was. And it was getting him a bench penalties. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and basically, and then after a while, the athletic director said to him, you can't do that anymore. You know, and, and he believed after a while, yeah, that probably my players think I'm nuts. <laughs> so basically Adam worked with him and said, you know, why don't, when you have that urge to do that, instead of moving forward, press your back into the glass behind you and then move forward. And by doing that, you physically don't move as forward and it actually shifts the behavior. Yep. So after a while, he actually learned in system two how to do that in more cases than not was into a system one behavior. You know, and I yep. think that that's, that's where it really helped him out a lot. So, so the first part of the book really focuses on, on, on the coaching and their capacity to self-manage. The second part of the book is about um, leading and empowering athletes. It's about, you know, cultivating connections through trust, um, empathy, and, and, and mattering, 
you know, and making sure that all athletes matter. They may have a certain scope of contribution, but the coach is making sure that the athletes are clear about that. Yeah. Coaches show a type of cognitive empathy where they really understand where that athlete's coming from, even though they're, they, you know, there, there might be generational differences there between coach and athlete. Emotional empathy to know what it's like to feel what it's like to be a 16 year old. Imagine during COVID, what was it like for seniors who lost their lost the lost the the end of their high school careers and their college careers? Yep. You know, um, coach has another year to you know the coach can come right back into it. But uh, you know that. And then third one, which is just as if not more important, is empathic concern, and and that's basically the coach saying or just expressing through nonverbal communication, hey. I'm here for you unconditionally, yep. no matter what. Yeah, I gotcha. I gotcha. And then, and then also to lead and empower through healthy feedback to giving appropriate amounts of feedback, the right feedback at the right time for the right reason to the right athlete. You know, whether it's appreciation feedback, skill improvement feedback, or evaluation feedback, and knowing that, that which is the right one to do at the right time. And that takes practice. Oh yeah. Just into practice to get there. And then also letting go of control. Okay. Allowing the athlete, you know, to, to, to take some more of the control. And that's easy for some coaches and it is really challenging for some other coaches. Right? Yeah. And the third part of the book, Dan, focuses on the team dance and choreographing the team dance of looking at the importance of understanding the polarity or the balance between the individual and the team. There is an I in team. You know, that, that the team is critical, but there is an individual. And how do you recognize the individual? How as a coach, how do you recognize the team and allow for that to happen and work well together? Um, and then, then also um, looking at, you know, how do you develop the, you know, your core values within the team, but not just talking about saying we are family, we are one united. It's saying, well, what are the behavioral anchors to that? What does that look like lived? Yeah. So, 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 and, and what happens if we're not accountable to that instead of just using it as window dressing? And then, and then talking about culture from, from looking at accountability and support, um, um, looking at the institutional memory of teams and organizations, uh, the continuity of that, but at the same time, the the, uh, the the transformation that teams need to make, yep. you know, over time, which is important. One thing that flows throughout all three areas of the book that that focuses on first on the coach, second on uh, others, and third on the team is a chapter dedicated in each of the three areas called the psychological capital. And psychological capital. Um, is related in many ways to understand capital or assets or benefits. If you think of human capital in sports, that's the knowledge and skills of the coach. It's the knowledge and skills of the athletes and the teams. Uh, social capital are the relationships built among those involved with the teams. Psychological capital, and this was based on the work of Fred Luthens from the University of uh, um, Nebraska at Lincoln back in the mid 2000s, um, psychological capital first understood in, in business. And now then I brought it over to sports is you can think of the acronym HERO, H-E-R-O, which he, Luthens talks about. H is for hope. And hope is about goal setting. It's about pathways to reach your goal. And it's about having the agency to get there. So I'd say, you know, look at the pathways that got stuck or blocked during COVID. How do coaches work through that there too? How do athletes work through that? Um, and so, and the second area is efficacy or confidence. And how do you, how do you, you know, how, how do you bring confidence out there? How do you take mastery experiences that you've had in other aspects of your coaching and how do you bring it to something that you struggle with, you know, and who are the models that you look after as coaches as athletes, who do athletes look at? Um, how, how much do you get recognition and feedback for what you're doing? And then the fourth aspect of, of, of confidence and efficacy is basically how do you respond in tough situations? Yep. What, is the, what is that readiness 
to the psychophysiological readiness and how you can be that way. The third is R is resilience, you know, bouncing forward in the spite, spite of adversity. And, and I think of a, something I mentioned in the book, uh, it's called explanatory style. And basically explanatory style is, is, is how do we explain adversities that we have? Uh, are we, do we have a positive approach to it? Do we have a negative approach to it? And I think it depends um, on situations. But, but if you take Darren and Samantha, they're uh, um, a baseball player and a softball player, respective. Samantha's on the, a softball field and she's a shortstop and a grounder gets hit to her and it hits a pebble and goes over her shoulder. And she responds by saying, whoa, it hit a pebble and went over my shoulder. Wow, that's interesting. Okay, next batter, let's go. And she's ready to go into position. Yep. Darren's over in the baseball field. He's a shortstop too. Ball gets hit to him and hits a pebble, goes over his shoulder. And he just goes down on his knees and goes, the horror of it all, and bangs his glove. And, and um, you know, it could be just the opposite on, on, on any different field that you yep. have. It's not gender specific there. But who's ready? He's not ready for the next play. In fact, he's going to be first up and bat in the next inning in a really tight game. And coaches debating whether to pinch in him because he may not be ready for it. And so explanatory style, which is something that we see a lot in the area of positive psychology, is basically a positive explanatory style is that, first of all, the duration of the, the, of the adversity is very short. Flushing it down, very short. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then the scope of that, it's not going to affect other things. It's just this. So often people will have a bad event and it's going to ruin their whole day with everything else they do. Okay. No, the scope is there. And third is who's in control, the pebble or me. I'm in control. Yeah. I can do this. Now you take the negative explanatory style. Okay. It's just like the duration. It's going to last longer. It's going to affect other things that I'm doing and I'm not in control. Yeah. And so it's getting athletes through, through looking at, you know, um, their belief systems and their emotions and making those shifts in there. The final area is optimism. And, and resilience and optimism, of course, are related, but optimism really looks at the capacity to look forward in positive ways and to having a, a leniency for the past. Sandra Schneider, who at the University of um, um, or Florida State, I believe, or University of South Florida, talks about uh, this capacity to have a leniency for the past you know, so if you had a tough event, then an appreciation of where you are in the present and the opportunities for the future. And it's getting coaches to see these three areas, them, them, these four areas in them themselves and their athletes and um, also collectively within the team. So that's, you know, be the hero within, yeah. you know, kind of corny, but, but, but it's, uh, it's really interesting and really, really effective. It's yeah, it's, it's powerful. And I, I like, I'd love again with, with your experience, both as an athlete and, and as a coach, um, and then also obviously in consulting and working with, with teams. And I know there's not a one size like fits all answer to this question, but how do coaches train their younger, maybe more inexperienced to talk about like a high school athlete, maybe, to recognize that this moment of adversity is not the end of the world. It's not, um, it doesn't need to necessarily lead to a season of defeat and failure that it, it could be an opportunity for us to, to get better individually. And as a team, what, because it's, there's not a drill for that. Like, like you would think of it, you know, from a traditional sports standpoint, how, how can coaches help athletes develop those skills of the hero and to realize, yep, it was a small moment and we can't, we are moving forward and look at where we are now. Look what I learned from that tough situation. It, what, what, what type of maybe, you know, nugget of wisdom would you share with the coach to help foster the development of those skills? Cause as you know, and as you stated, if you go in the tank mentally, you're physically not prepared to step up to the plate or step out onto the field. A couple things, Dan. Um, one is getting coaches to uh, help athletes with their stories because sometimes that negative story narrative just uh, just stuck. 
you know, it sticks. And that's, that's, that's human nature. It's kind of a negativity bias that people have within them. And especially if, uh, if you're tired and, and I would call it halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, or stressed out, that's going to stay even longer you know, with you. And so getting them to understand what are their other stories and, and how have they come back from the past with something? say, well, you did this when you did this before. So it, 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 it expands the narrative and, and it changes that to a certain degree. Um, another thing to do in there is getting them to uh, look at, uh, looking at not just the emotion that they feel when something happens, two typical ones, um, um, emotions uh, that, uh, that athletes have when they've, um, had adversity and performed poorly is fear and anxiety to going together and shame. Okay. And it's usually the shame is usually self-directed, you know, and you know, they may say, well, I'm feeling shame because I let my team down. Yeah. But it's self-directed there too. Um, what tends to happen a lot of time is athletes at all different levels, Dan, is that they look at the emotion and the emotion kicks off everything and it spirals down the rabbit hole at that time i think coaches and i talk about this in the book of actually looking at what is the belief system that goes along with fear and anxiety typically and it's um i i i i find that um i don't have a coping plan and i've made a mistake and i don't have a coping plan so it's you're scared that you're not going to get out of it and so you begin to talk about what is that fear, you know, what's that like? Because it usually is not just something that happened on the athletic field. It's something that happened in other aspects of the life, you know, um, and then getting the athlete to, to reject that thinking and saying, how else could you think about this? You know, uh, I knew this was working with uh, collegiate uh, division one collegiate swimmers is is just that sometimes players saying you know um you know i i and i had a terrible workout today and uh and then getting them you know you know how am i going to be ready for this meet coming up you know uh and then you look at rejecting that saying that looking at a one training session as just a blip in time of not evaluating that much and saying well, what has the rest of your week been like yeah. Well, I had four out of five days that were really, really good. And yeah, I did. I, I had to rush over from class uh, and, and didn't get a good warm up today and stuff like that. So you re render rejecting that thought process. But you, in many ways, the athlete coaches can help athletes get more thought processes in there. Now, somebody might say who's listening to the podcast, well, I'm, you know, I'm just a coach. How do I get to that point? One of the things I mentioned in the book is how to do that how to do that and to really understand the stories and getting the athlete to take control of that. The other belief system comes that comes out of shame is I have failed to meet standards. Okay. And, and, and then, and many times, and just say that, you know, well, that, that the athlete many times has made the standards too high. Unrealistic. Yeah. Realistic. And then yeah. having to reframe that and refocus that to get them to do that, you know? So it's a process, but it's, it's worth doing. Yeah. And it's, 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 it keeps athletes from muddling around and gives them an ability to take a, a, the emotion, taking a look at a new belief system, bringing them up with more of a health, not healthy because our negative emotions can be healthy too. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Fear and anxiety, it, it can be very, very healthy. But it, if it gets in the way to the point where it's not being as helpful, uh, then then getting them to bring a new belief system in, which brings a new narrative in, which brings encouragement and joy and interest as a new emotion. Yeah. The the actual athlete makes the shift in there and makes the changes. Love it, love it, and, and you brought up uh, you brought up this word earlier in describing the the sections of the book and the the concept just played out where, yeah, sometimes the negative emotion is a, is a positive, and sometimes maybe too much positive emotion can be a negative, 
and and you, the 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 polarity concept and 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 finding that balance was uh, something a, a little bit of a recurring theme in the book. Talk on that for a couple uh, a minute, John. On polarities, yes, yep. Okay, yeah, polarities are are basically a um, another term for for paradoxes or healthy tensions. In human behavior, there's already always healthy tensions that are going on. Um, you know, between a lot of different things. Breathing is a healthy tension between inhale and exhale. Uh, we, 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 we go through it pretty well. <laughs> we're breathing too much. We're breathing, inhaling too much or exhaling too much and stuff like that. Well, you can, you can equate that to activity and rest. If you yep. do too much activity, you don't get enough rest, then there's a downside to that. And there's a consequence. You want to try to balance that. So in sports, if we talk about the notion for coaches and athletes to balance confidence and humility, you know, um, yeah. you know, uh, individual and team, yeah. balancing that, um, getting the job done, and relationships. Because I think as a coach, you want to get the team, get the job done, but you also know without a strong relationships in there, they may not get that job done. But yep. if you have a really strong relationships and, and have a hug fest and, and, and do real, so it's, and, and, and so these are not solutions or problems to manage. They're, they're, they're uh, situations to leverage because with human behavior, we're changing all the time. Yep. So it's never going to be solved. And because you have different memberships on teams based on injuries and year to year, with new players coming in, other players graduating and leaving, you're going to see those changes there. And I've found doing polarity work really, really is, is helpful. One, one with teams, one, I was working with a D1 uh, track and field team who ended up, uh, you know, the coaches were concerned that the, the athletes were too individually focused. And, and, and they, the, the only team focus they had were their event teams. So if you were a jumper, a vaulter, or a sprinter, you just hung out with them. You know, you didn't go watch anybody else. And so I met with them and had them actually do the whole, this, the team do a, um, an, an, you know, polarity analysis of five, six different polarities, including individual and team. And they scored really low on that. And they scored even lower on that because the, the much, many of the team members had an inflated view of that they were more for team than, than they weren't. So anyways, uh, you know, so we went through that and, and actually we spent around six hours doing this polarity work. And they, they, I was really impressed with the, 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 the athletes. They, 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 they hung in there and they put together action steps after mapping out these and actually came up with what, is, what are the benefits of being the individual? What are the benefits of being the team? And, and basically um, two days later, I was still in town uh, and I came by to watch their uh, the look the um, the indoor track meet that they had that weekend. It was in January, and coach came up to me. He goes, "You're not going to believe what happened." And uh, and I go, "What?" And he goes, "Well, um, the the vaulters and the sprinters got together because they weren't racing at the time or jumping in competition. And they went over the pole vault area, I mean, uh, to the shot put area, and they watched." Um, one of the Harvard, you know, uh, shot putters who was good, but not great. Yeah. He went there and just cheered away for him. And this guy hit his personal best by over eight feet. Holy smokes. Now I interviewed this young man and I talk about him in the book and he said, it was amazing. They came over and went nuts and yep. there was capacity to do that. So they actually found out how that worked in real life, you know, when they were able to do that. So, you know, the, so polarity work is really, really important. Um, there's a tendency to be either or and get on a certain team. Yeah. You know, um, politics is like that. You know, <laughs> we, we won't go down that rabbit hole. Well, I, was thinking, down the, I was thinking the same thing. <laughs> no, no, no. But, but the thing is that people like to be on their own team and they may prefer have a preference for a poll, but basically knowing that the, there is good in the other side. And how do you balance that across here? And sometimes the balance is not, it's not, it's not always even. It goes back and forth there. And I believe that coaches that are able to go back and forth there are really, really effective. And they bring out the best in themselves, their athletes, and their teams. 
Love it. Love it. And then just, and again, I, the, the coaching zone, next level leadership and sports, uh, the website is the coaching zone book.com. What, and I think again, another great feature, you buy the book, you, you get on the website, you, you put your email in there and all these exercises that John's describing, it might sound like a lot. He's got the playbook right there. It's a, it's a resource that comes with the book and, um, if you're hesitant about, well, I don't know if I can keep up with all you can. And it, the, the, the structure of the playbook is there for these exercises to start to implement some of these concepts in your team's culture. And that, that to me, I think is again, uh, another huge point is the fact that you have this resource in addition to the, the great stories and the great content in the book job. Well, yeah, done. And, yeah. And it's great. You know, you can do your own self-study with that. And then yeah. also we're going to be coming out soon with the, uh, the coaching zone initiative um, with the coaching zone master classes, where we're going to be, you know, advertising and marketing to get people coaches to, to join our online master class where you get, if you have the time and the space, then you get to, to, to actually do this. Uh, we're really excited to be piloting a, uh, an in-person um, event with uh, Endicott college up in, uh, in Beverly, Massachusetts at the end of the uh, September with their, with their head coaches on looking at the coaching zone and our first level of the master class that we have with that. So it's, it's really, really exciting. That's you know, awesome. I can't wait to hear how, how that goes. So I can't wait yeah. to hear about the, 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 the workshop up there at Endicott. Yeah. And, and, and one of the biggest issues that people coaches say it's time, you know, you yeah. get into your season and it's, you know, you don't have the time and, and I think, uh, you know, that when coaches can find that time, I think they'll find value in this, in this project. Yep. Love it. Love it. Now, and you're, you're a big story guy. And, and, and in the book, there's a lot of talk, not only about your stories, but a lot of the, the coaches that you've uh, built relationships with over the years and the athletes uh, about their stories. Let's hear a little bit about your story. Give us, um, I don't know, a couple couple impactful experiences and or people who have kind of, you know, shaped where you are at today, John. Uh, one person that comes to my mind right away is the late George Wheeler, uh, who was my high school uh, soccer coach. I, I ran cross country for three years, as I mentioned that, you know, that 11 year old thing, but I, uh, and, and I realized that I wanted to try something different. So I, 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 uh, I worked out as a soccer goalie and he was my, my coach, my, my senior year at then Framingham North high school, which is now Framingham high school. And, and one of the things about George was just, he was always there about the person. He won much more than he lost. Yeah. Okay. Uh, teams were always close at, at tournament playoff time. And I remember we were playing Needham, Needham high school, who was just one of the best teams in the state. And, uh, and uh, I was having a really great game, made a couple of nice saves. And then they scored like with five minutes left on a 40 uh, yard clearing pass that went over my head. I don't think the player even designed it to go there. And I lost it in the sun and I was embarrassed and mortified and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, and I went into his office after the game and, you know, I, I just, I just was really ashamed and, and stuff like that. And, 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 and he was there, John, we just played one of the top teams in the state to a zero, zero tie to this long. Of course you're disappointed. I was disappointed too, but look what you did there and what you put in there. And um, he made me feel as if I mattered. Yeah. And, um, and I'll never forget that story. You know, it's just, and I talk about that in the book. And he had that effect on many, many of his athletes that he had in there. And, you know, um, and I remember when I, you know, I, after I graduated from college, I came back and I student taught under him and then coached under him for several years before I moved on, you know, that, but he was, God rest his soul. He was just an amazing, amazing coach. Yeah. Talk about, obviously we're, we're into a lot of conversation about sport and that's, you know, a lot of the work that you do and it's a, a you know, passion of mine as well. So it's easy to go that route participation in, in competitive sport, team sport is important for, you know, youths, young adults, you know, teenagers, because why? 
Greg, you know, really, really good question. Uh, it, it, it's a natural home, you know, for for dealing with the uh, the hero, the psychological capital. It's a natural home for social capital, human capital, with knowledge and skills, but also to develop sets of goals, following through on them, being you know, developing your confidence in different areas, um, your resilience and your optimism. And, you know, and I think if I didn't have that opportunity to do that, I'd be a very different person. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know I'd be a very different person. Uh, and uh, th because I've had that experience, that exposure, you know, um, you know, I mean, you know, uh, you know, sports uh, are there's a Robert Novak, uh, Michael Novak, I believe, wrote a great book out there called The Joy of Sports. And, you know, and, 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 and part of that joy is there is putting ourselves as, as you know, as Drew Hyland, the former sports philosopher at Trinity College says, when you go out there, you step over the line, you step over the line, you take a risk, you're not sure how it's going to end up. And that's really, really exciting. I've had athletes before saying, I wish I didn't have to go through that, that, that nervousness and anxiety and go, yeah, but, but that's part of the that part of the joy that comes out of this is to do well. Yeah, you know, um, you know, and 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 Highland says it, it was almost this idea of feeling complete out there. You know, when when things go well out there, there's almost a feeling of being complete, and then it can change in a moment's notice. Yeah, you know, and then for most cancers, chance cases, you get a do over. Yeah. No, you know, uh, you know, and, and that's, that's, that's the joy of that opportunity to test that out and then to test that and transfer and translate that to other things that you do in your life. Love it. Love it. It's a, it's a big adventure. Sport is a big adventure. You don't know how it's going to turn out. You know where to go. You know where you want to go. You never know yeah. how it's going to turn out. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, the jump from college athlete to club and eventually professional. Um, and again, this was, you know, I think lacrosse is, I think, booming now, probably more so than it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Talk a little bit about professional lacrosse when you were involved as, a, as an athlete and where it is today. Well, I was involved in the, the, um, the major indoor lacrosse league, which is now the national lacrosse league. So it was, it was indoor lacrosse. I had the opportunity to play box lacrosse, which is similar to indoor lacrosse back in the eighties and a little bit. And, and uh, the, the, the put together kind of a, uh, a U.S. squad, which was not a necessarily uh, affiliated with the national governing body <laughs> we played in the senior B Canadian championship and played in the world championships. And, that was just against some Canadian teams, a team from Australia and a Native American team, an indigenous team. Um, but, but from that later on, I got it, you know, then I kind of stayed with it uh, when it came back to early 90s, 89 and 90, when I played for the, uh, the New England uh, Blazers uh, in the old MILL. And, and so, the, I mean, the, 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 the game has really morphed in, in incredible ways. The game, I mean, the skill level has increased um, incredibly, yeah. you know, that, that over time and not just the, the, the indoor pro league, but in the, like the PLL, the premier lacrosse league for, um, for outdoor, uh, outdoor lacrosse, field lacrosse, um, you know, players are faster, quicker than ever before. Shots are faster. You know, athletes are in greater shape. You know, and, you know, I look at some of the goalies there and I couldn't even imagine goalie being that good back when I was growing up. You know, it's funny, I, I work with the, the Culver uh, Academy's uh, lacrosse goalies and they're, you know, they're really good. And, and, and they're, they're probably just as good, if not probably better than I was when I was yeah. in college. Yeah. Now. And that, that's that whole idea of, uh, we call it the red queen effect of, of really being you know, just, just that, that everybody's getting better and better and better. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and, and I think today the game has just gotten so much greater. And so, so what is the, what's the missing link there? And, and, 
and the, and the missing link is of the relationships that players have with each other and their ability to connect with each other. You know, and that that makes that determination where you end up having these, there's so much parity in these leagues, especially in the PLL this past year. You know, so many games separated by one goal. Yeah. And what determines the difference, you know, that you have in that? And it's very, very small, very hard to uh, quantify and to qualify. Yeah. But the more that that athletes kind of know what somebody else is thinking, the better off it is. So I think that all everything has been ratcheted up, including the mental preparation by athletes and including the social connections that these athletes have on the field with each other. Yeah. Very, very important. And the obviously, you know, the advancement also in strength and conditioning and fitness oh, yeah. and all that type yeah. of stuff and nutrition. And um, but yeah, when you combine that all, that's when you see the growth and the improvement in the sport over the years. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's quite amazing. It really is. It really is. Well, ladies and gents, we're here with John Yeager. He's the CEO, founder, Yeager Leadership, um, YeagerLeadership.com, and also co-author of The Coaching Zone, Next Level Leadership in Sports, uh, TheCoachingZoneBook.com as well. Highly, highly, highly rec uh, recommend uh, you checking out the site and picking up a copy of the book and the the appendix of wonderful exercises moving forward there. And we are on the home stretch. We're going to finish off the episode in traditional format. We'll finish the drill. Quick uh, rapid fire, rapid response questions here, John. Are you ready to have your coffee handy? Are you ready to rock and ready. roll? Or ready, ready. <laughs> All right, we're, going to come out. <laughs> we're going to come out swinging here. Leadership means dot, dot, dot. Yeah, leadership means, uh, you know, bringing out the best in other people. For a common love, love it. Give us an example of a coach in your experience um, who you would consider like the you know top notch, cream of the crop, you know, as far as leading a group of athletes. Uh, and and why would you identify that person? Oh Jesus, there's there's a bunch of them um, out there. You know, um, I really like Lars Tiffany who's the uh, men's lacrosse coach at the University of Virginia, who they had uh, a championship team from last year from, you know, I've, I've met Lars before, worked some camps with him in another generation, but, but the bottom line is that what he's able to bring out of his players is, is, is pretty amazing, you know, um, and I think his care for them is, is really important. Awesome. Advice for... A, a high school athlete who is aspiring to take that next step and play competitively at the collegiate level. I'll wrap it out. Continuing to wrap it out. Um, do stuff too. You can make it system one thinking. Yeah. And also, also work to the point where your mental side of the game is, is strong enough. So it doesn't get in your way when you perform. Love it. Love it. And then this one is, is, I think, specific to the time that we're in and hopefully coming out of. Um, but you, you touched on this earlier in the episode about, you know, athletes missing seasons uh, and some, some of them missing like their final, you know, maybe the final games that they might play ever in their life competitively. For, for coaches who are leading athletes right now in this current situation, um, what wisdom would you give them from your experience, knowing that these are athletes that are coming out of two rough years from so you know social development, athletic skill development? What, what's a bit of uh, your wisdom you would share with coaches who are in this situation right now? Continue to show the empathy with your athletes, bringing out the best in them, understand their the elations and also their frustrations. There's a thing called the hot cold empathy gap, and what that means is. Sometimes coaches don't have, may not have that, you know, it may be not uh, hot for them in the situation. You know, of course, not being able to coach, you know, with COVID last year or the year before, you know, was, was tough in there. But to understand what is, what's it like for the athlete where it's really a hot moment happening and doing that and getting to know, getting to know your athletes in ways so you can respond to them and how they're doing. And, and I think that's really, really important. You know, and I think that's, I think one of the things with COVID, it's allowed for many, many coaches to actually do that. Yep. To, to make sure that they're feeling that they can connect well with their athletes. Love it. Love it. Well, ladies and gents, that was 
John Yeager hitting in the one hole of uh, season four of the Lead with Empower podcast. Again, founder, CEO, Yeager Leadership, co-author of the Coaching Zone Next Level Leadership in Sports book. Um, I'll have websites in the show notes. John, thank you so much for taking some time to help us kick off season four. Just great stuff throughout the episode. Really appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Dan. It was great to be here. Appreciate oh, it. Oh man, my my pleasure. And can't wait to stay in touch over the fall and winter. And you know, let's let's try to figure out a time to get uh, to do some work together too. I think it'll be fantastic. We'd love to. We'd love to. <laughs> well. Ladies and gents, thanks for tuning in to uh, episode one of season four of the Lead with Empower podcast. Hope you have a great rest of the week. Always remember, be courageous, be kind, get after it, and you will realize the dreams that you want to realize. Thanks for tuning in. We will see you all next week. Great leadership may look and sound different. However, there are common threads that connect all tremendous leaders. They are passionate about those that they lead, they do that which brings out their best and the best in those around them. And they never take the easy way out because the exceptional will never come from easy.